I'm Dr. Pete Economo, the East Coast psychologist. And I'm Dr. Nikki Rubin, the West Coast psychologist. And this is When East Meets West. So we're going to open up today with a challenging conversation and uh, we're going to talk about race and what it means in the psychological science of you know racial identity. And I, you know, I think you can kind of hear the somber tone. Yeah. Right, Nikki, this is not like one of our more fun topics that we, you know, often can talk about. Yeah, and and I think it's important to say that because well, obviously we want uh listeners to enjoy what we're saying. Really the reason we did this podcast is we want people to learn something, have the opportunity to learn something, and hopefully everyone is able to use uh the current climate as an opportunity to learn more about uh racism in our, our society, white privilege, white supremacy. And, you know, Pete and I really wanted the opportunity to talk about that here. Yeah. And I think I'm going to share, you know, I think we, we we're recording this a couple weeks after the murder of George Floyd and, yeah. and we had done one episode. I think that's kind of, you know, helpful as we're trying to practice what it means to, to have a podcast. Yeah. Um, you know, I think we did a really good job with the content the first time we did this, and I think we're trying to do it again because we want to just make sure that we're capturing, you know, the the, the main essence of what racial what racism is, the mm-hmm. impacts of prejudice, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and and so we want to give it the space because education yes. is key, and that's what we're doing here. And we're saying, you know, and I think you and I have done a lot of trainings with people about diversity inclusion. And I think, it, you know, these are really challenging things to talk about. And, and mostly because people don't talk about it, you know, that's right. I mean, e- even, even in psychology, that's yo, the thing, you know, Pete yeah. and I've been talking about this a lot that, and we've talked about this before, frankly, you know, prior, uh, prior to the mur- murder of George Floyd, prior to the protests, though it's been extremely top of mind, just uh, the systemic racism that exists in our own field. If, if you haven't, yeah. you know, looked at our website, uh, Pete and I are both white. Yeah. And, you know, the American Psychological Association, I think they estimate it's about 80% of psychologists are, are white, right? Yeah, yeah. It's high, you know. Yeah, and then historically, like a lot of the theory and research is based on white yes. males. Yes, exactly. You know, and then thank goodness for you know, girl power because yeah. people, like, you know, now it's a predominantly female field, uh, but in terms of people of color and diversity, it's so, it's so, lacking. it's so lack, it's yeah. so problematic. And, yeah. and so that, that of course impacts what we're talking about too. So, you know, we can't obviously discuss behavioral science without acknowledging the, the white supremacy to, that exists within that. And then actually also, and this is something I've been thinking a lot about that I'm, I can't remember if I was saying this to you, Pete or not, but how Eastern spiritual traditions have come to the West has yeah. also been, you know, really dominated by white totally. voices, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, and, and, and they, they suffered racism and persecution as they first came in, you know, some of the first Easterners to come into the West. I mean, in the, in the mm. Zen Buddhist traditions, one of the, one of the traditions of becoming a teacher is you have to, you light a candle and you drip, uh, you drip the wax onto the document that your teacher gives to you to, oh. to demonstrate the installation. Oh, that's uh, lovely. Yeah. And they do that because they had to do it in secrecy when they first came. So, I didn't know that. Wow. Right. So Buddhist, yeah. you know, and again, Buddhism t- traditionally speaking is not even a religion, um, but the persecution, but here we are, look, white people That's with our I'm privilege, yes. we just went to religion and because race is so hard to talk about. It's so, it's so hard to talk. Yes. And, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it, so let's talk about it. Let's talk about why it's uncomfortable. Let's talk about even how it's uncomfortable for you and I to discuss this here yeah. in like a public forum too, right? Yeah. Well, I'll say it's less com- it's it's more comfortable for me. That's uh, true. And I don't want you know 
No, that's true. Well, and can I say, because Pete, Pete had some, and I don't, well, let me start by saying this. I don't want to dog my training because yeah, I, was, no. I went to Pepperdine for my side E and I would say Pepperdine compared to most programs, I thought did like a pretty good job. That was definitely something that was a part of my training. And it, I was, you know, my degrees in clinical psychology and clinical psychology has not done nearly as skilled a job as counseling psychology, which is the degree that Pete has. And so Pete had just intensive training and in talking about race in ways that I did not have. Yeah. I mean, I had to spend an entire year just talking about race as a part of my practicum clinical training, yes. you know, so we used a couple of textbooks from like, um, you know, undoing racism, Sean Uzi yes. with, you know, racial identity development and looking at how, and, and me as a white person with a very diverse cohort could only talk about race. So if, yeah. we, were, if we were conceptualizing cases or we, we were dealing with, you know, something we were struggling with, with a client, we would only be able to talk about the racial constructs that were present in the room. And so, you know, so plus important. I've done some of these other, you know, Janet Helms, yes. um, other sort of work around, you know, racial identity. However, I'm still a white man. And so I think it's, I, I'm sure. a strong ally and I feel sure. like that's really where my comfort comes in. Yes. Um, and I work in sport with a lot of, you know, athletes of color. Yes. And I really am so focused on empowering them to find their voice mm -hmm. because a lot of systemic racism exists in sport and certainly in academia. Yes, absolutely. Right. And so, if, so when we're talking about like privilege and power, so one of the things that will, so, and let me, so going mm -hmm. back to the discomfort of race, yeah, yeah. The, the thing I often think about is when we had our first black president, it, no one talked about race when he, when it was like him against John McCain. You know, when he, when, when Barack Obama was mm -hmm. running against Hillary, you talked about gender. It was like, the world's not ready for a black or a female president. And they could, right? Yeah, that, that was, that was, that was permissible in, in the conversation for, for let's, let me, for white people. Right. I would say would be right that that was yeah. something that felt comfortable or accessible to discuss. Right, and then it led to the Obama effect, where you know people right. of color then felt like we got a black president, so like racism has been cured. Right, and frankly, I know in my lifetime, while I'm on this earth, I'll never see the cure of racism. No, I mean, it's just something that if we're just starting to talk about it because another black man was murdered, when are we uh, going to get? Yeah. Well, that's the, that's what's what's so what's so painful. And, and of course, again, I'm saying that um, as a, a white person who hasn't had to navigate oppressive systems my entire right. life. Um, and I think that for a lot of white people right now, there is hopefully a little bit more of a waking up and understanding how pervasive this is that, right. you know, because I, I, I thought for myself a lot, and I've talked about this with some other colleagues of mine, um, not not all white, but colleagues that aren't non-black colleagues. Yeah, that people that I work with, like Pete and myself, that we've prioritized at least in psychology, and then of course that that uh, filters out into our experiences as as humans. That this is something meaningful to us. That we we try to think of things from a holistic, multicultural lens. That we want to yeah. be good allies, and that's certainly something that for myself is very important to me and align with my values. And yet. The thing that had never quite stuck for me, and I've been hearing this echoing from from not just colleagues, friends, friends as well that are not psychologists, it never quite resonated with me that part of privilege is that I have the option to turn it off. That's and right. I think that's the thing that hopefully, you know, I'm really I, I'm 
cautiously optimistic, I guess I'll say that yeah. there's there's something a little bit different there and people noticing that. Do you do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean I think, you know, Peggy McIntosh is a very yeah. you know, famous, famous right unpacking yeah. the knapsack. And I think in psychology, like I think most programs now read that. You know, it was like Yeah, yeah. You know, it was well, like you know, at one well, point well, well we had a well, I don't even know if we want to tell this story, but Pete uh, and I had yeah. a very yeah. you know we had a challenging conversation. We had a challenging conversation. <laughs> well well we we were have Pete and I had a an aligned perspective yeah. and had a challenging conversation with some uh some colleagues, colleagues that hadn't of ours. done the work. I mean I think yeah. and so what yeah. you and I did a good job with that was it's not like we were like angry at them. And I think so so one of the keys to these conversations is listening. Yeah, because every time people have these conversations, and as you see, you know, riots or you know, I it it hurts my soul when I see these pictures of the the groups, you know, of of the the, the Democrats, the Republicans, the blacks, the whites, the white supremacists, and you know, the allies, mm-hmm. you know, because it's like an us versus them, and oftentimes that conversation is trying to convince the other person. You know, convince, sure. you know, there's no such thing as systemic racism. Yes, there is. This is why. And I think the goal, at least for colleagues and educated white folk, is to listen. Sure. Yes, sure. You know, as allies. Well, and I think, you know, and I think part of that agreed 100%. Though another conversation I've been having with people recently when, when uh, with, with uh, white people that I know, when they're saying, I don't, I, I want to listen, and yet people are so angry I get they're angry and when are we going to be able to, to talk about this? And yeah. one thing that I've tried to emphasize and, and really practice myself is to acknowledge that the anger experienced by the black community is beyond justified, yes. right? That, that's beyond justified. And, and I think part of my opinion is part of our job as if we want to be good, effect, I don't want to say good, effective white allies is in the listening space is That's to right. also make room for people to be angry. Yes, to let for emotion. Them to, yeah, for emotion to let let people have the space to express anger because, you know, people are allowed to be angry. Well, and there's the infusion of our Eastern practices is that yeah. you know, creating the space for that emotion. We're not getting rid yeah. of emotion. No, and I can't tell so I can't tell someone how to feel. Well, well, and emotions serve a serve a function from yes. a basic evolutionary perspective. Emotions uh, give us information, and so right. they're telling us something. So, what does what does anger do? Mm-hmm. Anger, like the action urge to get into you know dorky behavioral science uh, here yeah. for a moment, is what the emotion is telling you to do. And anger tells us to fight back because yeah. either ourselves or someone we love is has been harmed or is in danger of being harmed. Yeah. And I couldn't think of a better example if you're a member of a community that's experienced 400 years of oh. oppression, violence. Well, and even thinking about the constitution, you know, I think, I, you, know, yeah. you know, so, yeah. so, you know, and I think, so on one hand, I think the forefathers, you know, were super white, obviously mm-hmm. colonized. I mean, it's a, yes. that's the word mm-hmm. you're hearing a lot of is a colonization. Yeah. And yeah. in there, it says that black people are three fifths of a person, it, you know? I, and so, so yeah. if we're not, if you don't think systemic racism exists, just read the constitution. Yes. Well, <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting. I went to, um, I went to a protest in my neighborhood um, yeah. that uh, was led uh, by the the black community there, and I live I live in a neighborhood that um, has experienced gentrification, you know, yeah. for the last I don't know five to ten years. Um, and so this in the in the protest beforehand, there was a lot of speakers of um, you know people that have been in the neighborhood for a long time. And one of the things that one of the speakers had said that I thought was uh, very excellent was that in talking about the Constitution and how this. Uh, country was formed, he said, number one, 
the founding fathers didn't think that we were going to be here in reference to, to, to black people. Of course. And number, number two, he said it wasn't written for anybody, but right. rich, white, rich white men. And That's I think right. the rich is also important because it was for property owners. He said, That's not right. for women, not, not for anybody. Right. And, and we, you know, we, we don't, we don't teach that very well in school, unfortunately, no. you know? No. And, and, and again, so here we are with race where we, we talk about gender, we talk about yeah. class. So if we go back to, you know, white privilege, this is another yeah. term I think, I don't use that term if I'm doing a diversity inclusion training, especially knowing my audience, because I think that's a very triggering word for some folks, you know? And I think what I want to like deconstructing that here is it's about the idea that me as a white person, I haven't had to look for things that look like me as role models. Right. You know, I haven't worried about a book with a, somebody that looked right. like me on the cover, you know, and frankly, it's, and it's about access. I haven't yes. had to worry about healthcare. Mm-mm. You know, I haven't had to worry about, you know, too much crime mm-hmm. on the well, street. Well, basic safety. Basic safety. Bas- basic safety. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so those are all the, and, you know, and in terms of privilege, so just being white, just being male mm-hmm. and also let like, you know, so I went to a very privileged high school and my grandmother paid for it, mm-hmm. you know? And so I, that was access. Like I had mm-hmm. a grandmother who was able to pay for it. Right. You know, so even though I had multi-generational, multi-generational aspects of my family, that was part of my privilege that I had access to an education that set me up. And I think, you know, in all of this, I, there's I, four CEOs of color in Fortune 500 companies. Yeah, it's something like that. I just yeah. Wrote a, yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah. one of them, like one of the gentlemen, and I, I, I don't remember his name, but he's from Philadelphia, and so he mm-hmm. talked about how he got to where he got. In this article I was reading, and he was saying that he was part of like an um, an educational system of taking poor black folks from mm-hmm. you know inner Philadelphia out to suburban Philadelphia to be educated, and that that access is what led to him becoming a CEO. And, and that, that, yeah. that, there it is. I mean, that's power and privilege. So even Absolutely. as a black person, he represents and possesses some power and privilege at this point. You know, so it's yes. not just always about white and black. There are other aspects of access within it. Well, yes, absolutely. And I mean, I think that's where if you have you ever read Hillbilly Elegy? Have you read that book? No, no. Great book. Uh, Vance, I think is his last name. Um, and, and just as a kind of bizarre tie-in. I read that book a few years ago and it came out right after I had read Born a Crime by Trevor Noah, which are two excellent books He's I highly recommend. Too, anyway. yes, fan- yes, fabulous. And, adorable uh, and smart. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so what was very interesting about reading these two different very perspect- uh, uh, memoirs, these different perspectives, Hillbilly Elegy is written by, I think he grew up in rural Ohio, I want to say. He's white, grew up in a very conservative family. They The similarities between their their experiences of course Trevor Noah growing up in South Africa under apartheid right. was what the author of uh, Hillbilly Elegy described as like systemic poverty yes and and so there were some similarities to their experiences yeah. and i think the thing we want to keep coming back to here in this conversation about race is that even a ceo a black ceo he's still going to be at risk for being pulled over by the police absolutely so that, in a yeah. way that so so and i think that's because i think what you're saying is really important that we want to recognize you know all of all of the you know the intersectional yeah factors. it's multifaceted it's yeah. multifaceted right yeah. and right now where the conversation you know is is being spotlighted i think very appropriately beyond uh, overdue here is just recognizing that race itself is such a 
powerful influence in, in our society in ways that I think people just, white people didn't really yeah. clue into. No, and they still have it. And, you know, even with Trevor Noah, and I, you know, I joke and say he's, you know, he's beautiful and yeah. funny and smart, yes. you know, but I spent some time in South Africa and with apartheid, you know, that was a real significant event that was, I think, just like 50, 60 years ago. It wasn't that long ago, you know, mm. um, you know, Nelson Mandela. And yeah. you know, we've mm-hmm. all just seen this in the, in the, in recent years, frankly, yeah. I think. Yeah. But in any, you still feel the racism there, of course, yeah. You know, in in a much more palpable way, in my opinion, uh, in that you know you still have black servants, you know, today wow. in the you mm-hmm. know in this and there's you know I think there it's as we talk about intersectionality, multi multifaceted mm-hmm. nature of this. I think mm-hmm. there's oh I forget like thirty or forty country languages. Like I I think there's oh in South Africa yeah like yeah. there's thirty or forty like national languages. I'm not, I'm not sure. I do know that there's a lot. Oh yeah, and so like that in and of itself creates this hierarchy of like who speaks sure. the better language, or it's sort of like you know English, yeah, you know UK, you know it's all these sure, you know, and that's the thing that I think is important is that there's intergroup racism that also kind of creates to this racial divide as well. Like you know, people within groups are typically more like based on you know, there's lots of research that shows skin tone effect, within a group affects right. how people are respected within that same group. Yes, absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm you know, uh, aware of, for example, like in India, that's, yes. that's often a topic. Um, you know, it's just interesting as, as we're talking, a, a thought that's floating around in my mind right now is that I can imagine some listeners uh, hearing our conversation today thinking, isn't this supposed to be about psychology? Like, isn't yeah. this getting kind of political? Yeah. I mean, and and oh, yeah. well, I mean, and so I think I really want to make sure that I'm clear and I'm, I'm going to speak for you gently here. I'm Please assuming do. you're, 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 you're uh, aligned with this because uh, I know and you and I share a very similar worldview that Pete and I don't view this as political, mm-hmm. that this is about humanity. That's right. You know, I've been discussing that with uh, students, you know, yeah. asking like how, how to address this in therapy and, and, yeah. I, you know, cause as a psychologist, all therapists actually were trained not to impose a worldview on someone, which is really important because we want to practice from it from a non-judgmental place. And yeah. I would say that, you know, racial justice, social justice, oh. I think this is basic humanity. I mean, I, I, I can't view this with a political lens. I mean, no, I mean, I think even today, so knowing that the Confederate flag is being taken down, it's sort of like, yeah. you know, you, you hear some, there's a lot of people coming out of the woodworks, like people of color that have been in elected positions who have had to walk into a, uh, you know, elected office with, with the with, with the flag there, and you know, know. And, and it's yes, it's our history, and the political thing. Would, if we get into like, should statues be there or not? We're not saying that. We're saying what's racial identity, what's white privilege, you know, um, what's power, what's access, what's power, and and what's and and what's basic, what's base, what are behaviors that we can do that are aligned with basic human values? I mean, to use the flag example, you know, yeah. I'm uh, I'm Jewish, not religious, but you know. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how to say culturally, it. culturally, yeah, <laughs> uh, and and I I think that some people with the flag didn't recognize that for a black person to be in the presence of the Confederate flag would be no different than me walking in somewhere with a Nazi flag that's, hanging that's there. Good. Yeah, you know, though yeah. I think that's not been clear to a lot of people. So anyway, I think I think that's just important to to make sure we're 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 saying that we're, you know we're yeah. not here. Uh, it's not, well, a, this is not, this is not a political podcast. Um, no. and I want to make sure that people and know honestly, that this is not a, 
Yeah. Y'all be surprised when you hear what party I'm a part of. So anyway, we're not even, that's why it's, that's why this isn't political, but let's, you know, maybe as we end, let's think about, I, I love that you just said that and thank you for that. And what are some maybe behavioral takeaways, you know? So maybe if, if we think about maybe people wanting to listen to like, hear about what could they do, maybe sure. let's think of like two or three things that people can do as they leave I think know, that's after great. listening to this. Um, I'm going to suggest, uh, well, I, don't, I haven't thought about this, so this is just on the question. <laughs> I'm going to, do you have a suggestion? Or I, I do. I've got one right, right here. Go, I've, got, go. I've got one ready to go. Go. So I'm going to ask people, especially white listeners here, yeah. to make an intentional, mindful, conscious, willing choice to step into what's uncomfortable Good. and really make space to get curious about that. And, I like that. Yes. And do that for two reasons. One is the growth happens when things are uncomfortable, right? Mm-hmm. And number two, it's going to give somebody a teeniest, tiniest taste of, of what it might be like or feel like to, to be black in this country, like to be uncomfortable and just trying to take that and say, if I'm feeling uncomfortable like this, what might it be like to feel this way all the time? Yeah, so you that's know? good. So that's perspective taking, yeah. curiosity. I'm going to say ask open-ended questions yeah. and, and actually listen, but listen with open ears and find listening with an open heart. Yes. And mm-hmm. I think that if we can just take the, that as our takeaways, we have this conversation in, in, in place to potentially start to make some change. And I think that's where, when I do this work, I often say, uh, and one of my colleagues, Nancy Boyd Franklin at Rutgers, she says that hope is in the struggle. And that's a lesson that she had from her mom as a woman of color, one of the first black psychologists in the U.S. And I'm going to say that I'm, I'm willing to share hope with our listeners um, that, you know, these actions can make some change. So, Nikki, thank you so much for today. Your thank insights you are always so welcome. Vice versa. Hope, hope is in the struggle. Hope is in the struggle. This has been When East Meets West. I'm Dr. Pete Economo. And I'm Dr. Nikki Rubin. Be present, be brave. This has been When East Meets West. All material is based on opinion and educational training of Drs. Pete Economo and Nikki Rubin. Content is for informational and educational purposes only.